you've mentioned a couple of times that some of your theologian friends think of the modern era as uh, a mistake. <laughs> That's right. <yeah. laughs> and we should basically go back to the values of the pre-modern era. Well, I mean, one response to that is this is extremely unrealistic, but leaving that aside, um, I do think there's something important about the autonomy as a moral political value and the uniqueness of our own minds, which we did not get in the pre-modern period. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is a very special episode. I have uh, with me Dr. Linda Zagzebski, and we're she's coming back on the podcast. So she's already been on once to talk about omni-subjectivity and whether God knows our subjective states in a similar manner that we do or in the same way. Go watch that episode as well. Uh, but today we're going to be talking a little bit uh, different topics. So we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, The Two Greatest Ideas, and that's how our grasp of the universe and our minds changed everything. And it's, it's kind of like a history of ideas book, which I'm really excited about. I really enjoy it. She did a great job researching as well. Uh, and then she's done some constructive work at the end, too, that I'm really pumped to talk about how we might go about reconciling uh, the objective and subjective perspectives ourselves it's really fascinating i have two books to give away as well so there's my copy you're not getting that one it's got all my notes but these two fresh copies um i'm not super great with promo stuff but i figured we'll do a giveaway for all those who are subscribing to my Substack. so uh go and subscribe to my Substack. you can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this episode at and uh next week we will be doing a, uh, a drawing. So I'll draw, I'll generate two random numbers and pick from the subscribers. So subscribe to this, my Substack. You can get uh, all my stuff t- directly to your email there. That'd be awesome. And uh, two of you are getting free books. So that'd be awesome. Another uh, way, that's a good way to support the podcast is subscribing to my Substack. Another way is to support me on Patreon. You can find the link in the description as well. Uh, if you like this podcast, if it's your top five, top 10 top 15 if you want to see this continue please consider becoming a patreon patron you can join for as little as three dollars a month uh, all the way up to like a hundred dollars a month um that's huge that's the best way to support the podcast uh but another way to support would be to buy some merch and that also supports the artists i work with so you can find that stuff if you're on youtube you can click uh to my youtube store you can find the link to the uh, parker's pensies merch shop uh in the description as well there's so much self-promotion to do. It's unreal. But let's stop there and let's bring in Dr. Linda Zegzebski and let's talk about the two greatest ideas. Linda, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah. So um, this book is really fascinating. I was actually reading uh, another piece by you for my epistemology class with uh, Brandon Rickabaugh at PBA. It's uh, your essay, I believe it's called What is Knowledge? And so I've been getting a lot of you lately, a lot of your uh, voice in my head. But this idea is different. It's not it's not necessarily like strict, straight up philosophy. It's like history of ideas type stuff. Um, yes. Before we get into the two greatest ideas, what they are, uh, how about like, what, what's the impetus for writing this this type of book? Well, I've reached an age when I've started thinking about 
um, the history of my work in philosophy, um, how the ideas might fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, I have taught history of philosophy for decades. I also have an amateur interest in the history of art and literature. And so I started thinking about whether there are uh, connections in the history of art and literature and philosophy and how uh, I might go about thinking about um, what has driven the history to the point we are now. And um, so... I got the idea for the book um, just, I don't know how I got the idea. Most ideas just come into your head. But once I got the idea of these two greatest ideas and the interplay between them, many pieces in the history of thought, uh, history of philosophy, art, literature, moral and political thought, seem to come together into a coherent story. the book, as you say, is not a book that's strictly philosophy. It's history of ideas. So it's different from other things I've written. And it's also unconventional in that it's a big picture idea. Um, that I don't think is very fashionable these days. Um, but that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I propose is that there are these two great ideas The first is the idea that the human mind can grasp the universe, meaning everything there is. And the second is the idea that the human mind can grasp itself. Mm. And I argue that the first great idea dominated for thousands of years until the early modern period. And then the second great idea became dominant and everything changed in every field. And uh, so that's what the book is about. And then I also argue that both of these ideas are still within us as individuals and as a society. And they don't have a very easy, um, they're not harmonious. They're not, they don't go together very well in our thinking and in our culture. And uh, so then I propose that, thinking about this history will show us why we have so many confusions, both intellectual confusions and practical conflicts, political, moral conflicts. And then I propose a way forward. Yeah. So that's how the book, that's sort of an outline of how the book goes. Yeah. And I really like um, what you said about being later in your career and, and, um, looking over uh, the whole field and, and trying to put things together. I, I really like that. I've, I, as I talk with uh, systematic theologians, oftentimes they'll say, you know, writing a systematic theology book is for uh, a mature theologian. Like if you're, mm-hmm. if you're 22 years old, straight out of seminary or whatever, and you're trying to write a whole systematic theology, the, the, these things need years and years of pondering and chewing on and teaching on and reflecting on. So it, it's really cool that you're doing this. Um, so okay. I, I'm, yeah, and I'm I'm really excited about it. I think uh, these these two ideas you mentioned in the in the intro, I believe that they're almost so basic that it's like uh, why even reflect on them? Like, yeah, okay, the the mind can grasp the universe, but 
as I chewed on it myself, it was like, wow, this is a really fascinating idea. And to not have this idea and then to then grasp it would change everything. Um, and, and you talked about why it's not necessary to think that the whole universe is uniform just because you're, uh, you know, out there in the field uh, harvesting corn. Maybe just that part of the universe is uniform. Mm-hmm. But to actually project that on or, or conceive of the whole universe as being uniform is like a, a pretty staggering thing. It's pretty uh, perspective changing. Do you think that there was a time in history when people didn't have this idea or is this idea always, do you think this is part of like the human conceptual framework and it's just been reflected on more? Right. Um, That's a fascinating question. I have thought about it and I don't know if I can give a good enough answer without knowing much more than I know about history. Yeah. Uh, But one Uh, indication that the idea created a kind of intellectual explosion is the um, beginnings of ancient Greek philosophy in the pre-Socratics. So um, when you look at um, the ideas that we see in the pre-Socratics, Thales thought everything uh, derives from water. Um, Anaximenes thought it was breath or air. Uh, And Anaximander thought it was something like the infinite or the boundless. I can't remember exactly what the translation is. Um, Now, when I used to teach the pre-Socratics, students thought the idea that everything is water or air was kind of silly. Right. But actually there was something about it that was pure genius. The idea that there is something that everything is. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's water or air or the boundless. This, the very idea that they're looking for something that everything is means that they must have had the first great idea. Hmm. And um, did people before them have the first great idea? There must have been some who did. Um, but at least in Western philosophy, uh, the, first, the first people of record who show quite clearly that they had the first idea would be the pre-Socratics. Yeah. So I give a little attention to them. Um, and that you know, as we always say, started both science and philosophy because both science and philosophy really do attempt to look for universal laws, physical laws, metaphysical laws, mathematical laws. And that that urge to do so really arises from the idea that that there is a unified reality all of reality is in some sense one thing or it's one interconnected uh it's a thing with an interconnected structure yeah yeah i i uh i love the pre-socratics i love thales and uh partially because i i was one of those students who thought man this is ridiculous uh all is water come on man like didn't have you never seen a desk i guess he hadn't but a stone uh until i listened to some lectures by like art holmes uh they're on YouTube and, and he does such a great job of embodying like Thales and, and the person uh, 
oh. wh- whoever's idea he's he's representing and he he would motivate it by saying well look you uh, put some water in a dish and watch it dry up and there's going to be matter there afterwards his little white stuff or whatever mm-hmm. um and he, you just go through and see like i guess i could see how everything could be water you know if, if you're just going from the you know pre-socratic mm-hmm. uh mentality it's not as crazy as you think he's these people are geniuses um so i i, I really appreciated the uh the pre-socratic uh uh notes there and i thought it, it, it helped me like reflect on uh, biblical authors as well because i'm thinking uh i know some people think maybe aquinas thought uh that some of the the uh greek philosophers stole from from the Bible, from the Old Testament or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was thinking like, I wonder what Moses thought about like everything. Like he's getting revelation from God, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like anything in the Bible says, here's what everything is, you know? So you can still have these live questions and you did this, uh, you give this definition to demarcate philosophy from theology. You say philosophy studies, what can be known by natural reason. Theology studies, what revelation adds to what is mm-hmm. known naturally. And so I thought it's just so cool that these things are still live options, even if you have a super strong view of divine revelation. Um, what is there something that everything is? And I've actually been I've been chewing on that a lot. Um, so you motivated some some pre-Socratic questions for me again, and I, I really appreciate that. Well, I'm book. glad I'm glad to hear that, and I'm glad you mentioned scripture on the in the Old Testament because I definitely think that you see the first great idea. Uh, in Genesis, right away, in the beginnings of the Old Testament. And what's different about the form that the first great idea takes in um, the Hebrew scriptures versus Greek philosophy is that the Greeks thought that everything is one in a sense that can be systematized. Yeah. So you can systematize mathematics, science, philosophy. Um, uh, you can you can syst- and you can systematize ethics. Yeah, as Aristotle did. Um, but the Hebrews thought that everything is one as a story. It's a single narrative that you can tell. Uh, or can be tell or can be told in revelation from the creation of the world. Yeah. So everything is a one in an, and it has a narrative structure yeah. as opposed to a systematic rational structure as the Greeks were aiming for. Yeah. I, I caught that uh, later on. You, um, you brought up mythopoeic, mythopoeic. Uh, yes. Anything. Yes. And uh, it's understanding the world in the form of stories about personal agents. And that's something I've been thinking through myself because I'm, I'm studying philosophy and I studied theology. And I'm trying to also demarcate the two and see the interconnection. And, and I, I love that way of thinking it. Uh, theology, uh, like you said, it, uh, studies what revelation adds to what is known naturally. But it also studies that, that mythopoesis, uh, the, the mythopoetic structure of reality. Whereas I like to think of philosophy as studying like the, the furniture of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the story has someone falling over a chair and the philosopher is like, well, what is a chair? Do chairs exist? Yeah. Are they real objects or are they mm-hmm. just chair wise things? Um, so that that was that was really cool to, to think through. There's like the speculative thinking and there's mythopoetic, mythopoetic right. thinking. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I also really enjoyed. Uh, to, there, there's so many things that you helped me think uh, in a new light over. Um, 
I never really understood what Aristotle was talking about when he talked about poetry and and I don't know if it's poesis in the Greek or what, but poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talked about this epic poetry and um, imaginary persons populating fantasy worlds. It's it's something that we take for granted today. We, it's all of our best movies have these things, all of our best novels. But uh, Aristotle said that this type of poetry uh, of not what has been, but what could be or what possibly could be, is actually the more philosophical. And so you you putting in 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 light of like modern novels, and I thought of comic books and, and stuff like that as well, really helped open my eyes to what Aristotle was getting at with poetry. Because I'm like, dude, I don't understand. If he's just talking about roses are red, like that doesn't seem very philosophical to me. But you, you opened up a new door for me to uh, appreciate mm-hmm. Aristotle and his speculative thinking, of, even through poetry. Yes, Aristotle um, in uh, the Poetics um, makes a good contrast with um, the modern view of what poetry is. Of course, when, when he says poetry, he means anything fictional. Yeah. We think fiction is. And Aristotle said that... Um, the reason poetry is more philosophical than history is that poetry, the characters in poetry are universals with proper names attached. Hmm. And he says the character only exists for the sake of the action. The individuality of the character he thinks is unimportant. Mm-hmm. Um the character represents universals and that's why it's, it's philosophical. Yeah. Um, think how different that is from the way we think ever since the rise of the modern novel. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of the characters in novels as being unique individuals, just like you and I are. Mm-hmm. We think of them as having particular interesting personalities they certainly they do not represent universals Mm. um and we think that we can in a sense get into the head of a character in a novel or a film and see the world through their eyes which we take to be distinctive different you know different from everybody else yeah and that simply is not done in epic poetry, uh, Greek tragedies, um, uh, so there, there is a the difference between thinking of the world as a whole and thinking of our place in the world as being simply a particular the way a particular mind fits into the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, where you understand yourself by understanding the whole, that is ancient and yeah. medieval. Yeah. But now we th- tend to think that the mind, individual mind comes first. The individual mind has primacy. We figure out what the universe is by reflecting on the contents of our mind. That is completely, you know, it's a complete, completely different. Yeah. And what I argue in the book is that when the second great idea, the idea that the human mind can grasp itself, became dominant, there were changes in everything. Like you've mentioned the change in literature. There were changes in art, in philosophy, starting with Descartes. Uh, 
modern science started and there were changes in moral and political thought as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating. So, so, um, I, Along the shift uh, in dominance from the external world to the the subjective world uh, of the self, you mentioned Mikhail uh, Bakhtin, and I thought that was mm-hmm. so cool because I, I've uh, I've had to read some of his stuff because uh, when I was studying theology, I was working with Kevin Van Hooser, and he pulls from him heavily, uh, and so it was really cool to see that name brought up again. But you you mentioned that uh, Bakhtin he links the subjective perspectives present in the novel. Uh, with the fact that epistemology became dominant over mm-hmm. uh, metaphysics. And I, mm-hmm. I thought that was such a cool take because uh, I've heard, you know, Charles Taylor talk about um, some of the non-personal reasons for shifts in ideas and the history of thought and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times, in, especially in theology, people pull from Taylor and it's like, that's that's QED. Taylor said it, then that's that. The, the modern train is the reason why people mm-hmm. stop going to church. But you still give this personal reason of the novel uh, and, and the shift. Can you can you uh, flesh that out for us a little bit more? How did the the modern novel uh, either aid or how does that how does Bakhtin or or um, or you think that the novel is linked to the shift from metaphysics to epistemology? Oh, I see. Yes. Um, well, Bakhtin compares um, epic poetry with a novel. Mm. And um, one of the interesting things he says is that in the epic poem, there's no difference between the interior of the character and the exterior. Everything is externalized. Um, So what you are is the way you are perceived. It could be perceived by the chorus in the the tragedy. Um, But you are as you are perceived and are you as you are thought to be in your society. Mm. Your interior is transparent. There really isn't any important interior to the character. Whereas in the novel, it's just the opposite. The interior of the character is not only important. Sometimes it's the whole story. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And um, so the that means that um, how we think from the point of view of our own minds comes first. Um, what the world is as a whole, metaphysics, comes second. Mm-hmm. So epistemology precedes metaphysics. This is not actually what uh, Bakhtin said, yeah. but I'm. It's. I think it's implied, and it's part of what I'm saying in my story is that epistemology comes first when you think that the way we know starts with our own minds. Mm. And then we, you know, you can see this in the modern rationalists as well as the empiricists that, you know, you see this in Descartes and Locke. Um, We start with our own minds. We figure out what the world is outside of our minds by reflecting on the contents of our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that um, metaphysics had to be, um, what would be, well, how should I put it? Grand metaphysical schemes were no longer in fashion. Yeah. Because when you start with the contents of your own mind, 
Your first problem is skepticism. Can you get outside your mind to know anything about the exterior world? And then do that. What when you put together the contents of your mind is much, much more modest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Than what you get if you are doing, um, you know, if you're like Aristotle or Aquinas mm -hmm. or even in the early modern period in Spinoza or yeah. Leibniz. Yeah. I mean, they had big schemes, but those are, fell out of philosophical fashion uh, fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, that's basically, I think, the idea that I'm talking about there. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I, was, uh, I was so fascinated by that, and it made some connections. Um, I, I really, I'm really intrigued by the idea of the authorial analogy for the God-world relation, that God relates to the world in an analogous fashion to an author and their novel. And, uh, oh yes, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that. But, um, I, I wondered to myself, you know, why, if this was such a good analogy, why wasn't it used more throughout church history? They talk about the book of nature, but they rarely would talk about God as like this genius author. And this guy, uh, this theologian, Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt talks about the rise of the modern novel. And that had to be, uh, that had to be invented in order for us to then see the author as this creative genius. And so then to make that connection I to see. God. Yes. And, and so it, yeah. it tracks this, the, the same story of the modern novel, but from a, a the theological perspective. So again, mm -hmm. just so many connections from this book that I really enjoyed. Um, and while the novel and the rise of the novel is linked with it, um, you're careful not to say it caused or anything like that. But um, you do, you do mention Descartes a lot and everyone always points to Descartes as, you know, um, as a, a pretty clear indicator that we're making this shift from objective to subjective, from metaphysics to epistemology. Um, just real quick, like on a personal note, is, is Descartes a bad guy? Is he like, is, is it his fault uh, that we're all trapped up in subjectivism or would, would someone no, else? No, not at all. Okay. Um, I mean, it's, I see him as just one of the um, inventors of the idea that the second great idea comes first, the idea mm. that we, that our, our grasp of our own minds comes first. Yeah. Um, so the first modern novel, Cervantes, Don Quixote, mm -hmm. um, which is universally accepted as, as, you know, one of the greatest works of fiction ever written that preceded Descartes. Yeah. And uh, so the revolution in literature preceded the revolution in philosophy mm. and the revolution in art also preceded it. Yeah. Um, so in the Renaissance in 15th century Florence, the Arab invention of perspective was brought to brought and used um, to magnificent effect both in painting and in architecture and in changes in uh, optics and navigation. I mean, it was the, the, the discovery of perspective had um, enormous cultural ramifications. Hmm. In art, what I find particularly interesting is that the art of the Renaissance not only became more realistic because of the 
um, discovery of perspective, of principles of perspective. But it also showed people differences in point of view. Mm. So the artist could choose a particular point of view in, in the painting, uh, could represent it. It could be identified or, or, or recognized by viewers as a particular point of view. And that point of view could change from, from artist to artist or from person to person. So it gave people the idea of the existence of points of view, the differences from each other, and how those differences are important. Mm -hmm. So the modern idea of the differences in subjective perspective and different points of view was can partly be traced to the um, idea or the use of perspective in uh, art prior to Descartes. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that the revolution in art and literature actually preceded the revolution in philosophy. Um, the revolution in science uh, accompanied the uh, revolution in philosophy. Mm. And Descartes clearly says that he's aiming to give science a firm foundation. Yeah, his full the, the full title of his book, right? It mm -hmm. adds that super duper long, but yeah, it adds scientific knowledge. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so that's so cool. I I meant to ask this later, but it it's uh naturally popping up right now. Um with with art and literature preceding um the movements in philosophy, some people will will use that and say, well, they won't use this language, but as philosophers, maybe we can. They'll say something like, you know, philosophy, philosophers uh, or philosophies are nomological danglers. They just come afterwards. Right. They're, they don't have any like they're not actively shaping culture. They're just the result of culture and culture shapes philosophy. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Like the interplay between philosophy and culture or are, are philosophers genuinely shaping culture? Well, I definitely culture? think philosophers are shaping culture. This actually is a. Um sort of the opposite extreme from the question you asked before. I mean, you, you asked before, can, can we blame Descartes for everything in the modern period? And I said, well, no, because there's <laughs> revolutions in art and literature and science uh, in addition to the revolution in philosophy. Um, but now you're saying maybe philosophy doesn't do anything except um, follow along the revolutions in other parts of culture. And uh, no, I mean, I, I, there's, I don't know exactly how to put it, but Descartes and Locke, both rationalists and empiricists, just to pick two important ones, uh -huh. are still widely studied and widely influential, mm -hmm. even though maybe if you ask a person on the street, how important do you think Descartes is? They might say, oh, I don't know, who's Descartes? Hmm. But um, yet their own thinking was influenced and, and shaped by views of philosophers in the early modern period and, and still continuing. So, yeah. And another um, uh, important example of the change in culture with the switch from the dominance of the first great idea to the dominance of the second great idea 
is in moral and political thought. Mm -hmm. And that does touch very closely to what ordinary people who are not philosophers think about the world and about themselves. So one of the um, switches then was from the idea that the human being should live the moral way to live is in harmony with their nature, which is a part of nature as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, So that morality is living in harmony with the, with God or nature or both together. That was the dominant idea in the uh, pre-modern era. Mm-hmm. But with the rise of the second great idea and the and the, the 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 view that we first grasp our own minds and then grasp what the world is, that led to the idea that I direct my thoughts. I direct my thoughts. I am the ultimate authority over my thoughts. Mm. I direct my thoughts. And when I direct my thoughts, I will, with luck, come up with some views or some ideas about what the world is like. But my ability to direct my thoughts is the primary moral authority. The primary moral authority is not the world as a whole or nature. The primary authority is autonomy. myself and my ability to govern myself. So we got a switch from the idea that morality is living in harmony with nature to the idea that morality is grounded in the self's ability to direct itself. Mm. And that not only changed morality, it changed political thought because if the primary authority is autonomy, then political structures need to be um, based on the agreement of self-governing autonomous selves. So we get a switch in political and politics and political social structures. We get a switch in political theory to explain that as well as a switch in moral theory with the, rise of the second great idea yeah that's so it's so fascinating to think about because um with if if autonomy is the highest uh authority or 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 good then yeah we need to set up this government in order to maximize that um but but uh, if uh if you switch that around then you you play an important role in society. And that's what, that's what gives your life meaning is how are you helping the mm-hmm. the common good? And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's overly, I don't want to be over, overly simplistic, but you can see that even playing out between you know, communism and capitalism and, and just different underlying structures uh, and, and philosoph- uh, philosophies undergirding those. And I'm sure it's so complicated in what you're talking about this kind of capitalism or that kind of so, uh, socialism or communism. So uh, it's just fascinating to go super broad view and see the different uh, perspectives and distinctives that are em- emphasized from moving uh, in moving from one great idea to the the second greatest idea. So so cool. I love I love this framework. Yes. Well, I guess what I would add to what you said is that if you just take our own society, 
um, you see the clash between um, the idea that morality is living in harmony yeah. with the world around us and, and versus morality is autonomy. You mm-hmm. see this clash in more communitarian ideas about society versus very individualistic ones. Yeah. And I actually think that both the value of harmony and the value of autonomy are in us, in us as individuals and in us as a society. We have both values. The problem is we haven't figured out how to put them together very well. And I think we can actually trace a lot of the hot button political issues that we face today to a clash between these two values. Mm -hmm. But the two values don't actually line up with um, the the standard left versus right political positions. Yeah. So like autonomy is um, usually the main value that's appealed to by people who support abortion. Mm -hmm. But it's also the value that people referred to when they were resisting COVID shutdowns or vaccine mandates. Uh, Yet one tends to be left and the other tends to be right, but they're both the value of autonomy. Or gun rights. Um, Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, there's a lot of political issues that I mention in the book. Um, Another one that, Uh, doesn't seem to line up with the political divisions is environmental concerns. Yeah. So environmental concerns really cannot be addressed adequately with the value of autonomy. Um, (laughs) They, they really require a first grade idea um, view about the importance of living in harmony with nature. Yeah. Um, And yet those tend to be done by left leaning people Mm -hmm. Um, And the resistance to it on the grounds of autonomy tend to be, you know, come from right leaning people. So I think the left versus right division is very unhelpful Mm -hmm. um, and just leads to further confusions and further polarization. And what we really should think about are, are these two, two ideas and the, and the values that we have inherited from them. And um, that, I think, is um, is something we haven't done yet. Yeah. Um, another thing I like in the book is that you you treat these two ideas um, like you're doing here as equal goods. And so it's uh, oftentimes I'll hear mm, maybe I'll throw my theologian friends under the bus uh, theologians saying, you know, talking up the pre the pre-modern perspective. And that's the way to go. And that's where we need to go back. And you just ask them the same questions that Descartes asked. And it's like, well, did, have you sufficiently answered Descartes? Because if not, mm-hmm. then you can't just ignore him. You can't just pretend like he didn't exist. Um, you can't just go back to the good old days of the pre-moderns. You still have to answer these same questions. So I, what I appreciate about uh, what you've done here, Linda, is that you you prop them both up and say both of these are good. Both We just have to figure out how to bring them both together. And uh, so I just I, I thought it was a, a really balanced take on both uh, both the, the first greatest idea and the second. Yeah, Neither so, one is evil or, or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. So um, you've mentioned a couple of times 
that some of your theologian friends think of the modern era as uh, a mistake. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and we should basically go back to the values of the pre-modern era. Well, I mean, one response to that is this is extremely unrealistic, but leaving that aside, um, I do think there's something important about the autonomy as a moral political value and the uniqueness of our own minds, which we did not get in the pre-modern period. Mm. Um, I think that individual uniqueness rests in our subjectivity and um, the discovery of subjectivity was a, one of the greatest discoveries in, in, in human history. Um, and it does explain why each individual person is irreplaceable. Hmm. Um, in the pre-modern era, the value that made humans, that gave humans dignity was their rationality. Um, we're made in the image of God. That would be the, you know, the, the religious version of it. Um, and what God gave us as our greatest gift is rationality. Um, and that value was the value that we see throughout the ancient and medieval period as, as being what makes us special, yeah. you know, what make, gives us special dignity. But when you think about rationality, rationality is a shareable quality. Mm-hmm. It isn't what makes you and I distinct right. or different from each other. It's what makes us the same. Um, and we so, can have it to various degrees too, right? So if, if someone mm-hmm. isn't rational, it's tricky. People always uh, point to this and say, well, look, if someone's less rational or something, are they less an image bearer of God? No one wants to say that. No, that's crazy. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And when you start talking about rationality coming in degrees, that's very dangerous because yeah. then it's human beings get respect in different degrees yeah. and have rights in different degrees crazy. And, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so I think that, I mean, I've argued in, in other places that, there are two senses of dignity. Mm-hmm. One is what gives us supreme value or, you know, very high value. And the other is what gives us the value of irreplaceability. And they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. So rationality is, as I see it, is the ground of what makes us um, special in the universe as a whole, as a species. And it's what gives us high value in the universe. And it's a value that comes from the first great idea. Where do we fit in the universe as a whole? Um, But I see subjectivity, our individual unique subjectivity as what the ground of our irreplaceability. Uh, It's what, it's what makes it um, a, a loss to the universe. If one of us dies, you know, there's a loss to the universe. We're irreplaceable. We're not irreplaceable because we're rational. We're irreplaceable because we are distinctive persons with unique subjectivity. So I think the discovery of subjectivity was extremely important um, in explaining what gives human beings a distinctive kind of value. 
that's that's huge uh following up on on rationality just briefly it gives us our high value is that value uh is it a qualitatively like distinct value from the rest of creation or is it um like quantitative like be, we're we're more rational than the apes but the apes are are decently rational so they're more value or is it like we're in a whole different realm and rationality is this uh qualitatively different thing well i mean there are different points of view about that sure. um yeah. And um, my point in the book and what I was just saying is um, rationality isn't the right kind of thing to explain irreplaceability of persons. Mm -hmm. Um, But you asked about the value of rationality and um, well, I mean, there certainly were eras when, it was thought that um, human rationality puts us above the rest of creation. In a, mm-hmm. You know, we are uh, in a separate category from the rest of creation. It's more um, common now to think of rationality as coming in degrees. Dolphins and apes and birds seem to be pretty rational in some sure. ways. So uh, I can't speak to all the examples of other animals, but it does look like other animals are more rational than we thought that that part sounds right. And um, whether that means that they are, you know, do partial respect or have partial dignity. I don't know what, you know, how to answer that. (laughs) Yeah. That's a tough one. Well, um, you, you, in the book, you bring up uh, uh, Fichte, post-Kantian thinker. I Uh used to be really, really intrigued by Fichte and I, I've let it go for a while, so I'm not as up to date. But because of his self consciousness, his his emphasis on self consciousness and awareness, mm-hmm. and I wonder if maybe that's a way to further elucidate or further like flesh out the the uniqueness that self consciousness um, incorporates both rationality and and uh, subjectivity. Do you, do you think that's right? Well, I'm not sure how to answer the question because I'm not sure I understand the question mm-hmm. as you're asking it very clearly. Um, um, self-consciousness is mysterious. Yeah. Um, because in every other kind of consciousness, we have a distinction between the subject and the object. In self-consciousness... I mean, you can think of yourself as an object, but self-consciousness isn't always that way. The subject and object are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Augustine said in more than one place, actually, in the Confessions, that um, the mind is always aware of itself. Yeah. It's, It's like it's something you carry with you all the time. So, um, I mean, you can focus on it or not as you choose, but there's a sense in which you're always Mm self-conscious. He doesn't use that term, but I mean, you could interpret it that way. And so self-consciousness can be understood as something that's automatic. Um, but you, we are able to reflect on ourselves and, when we do that, we turn ourselves into an object. And this is not a bad thing. 
because we need to reflect upon ourselves in order to judge ourselves, in order to evaluate ourselves, in order to say, oh, I think my memory of that event was mistaken. Mm. I mean, having the memory is an event in my consciousness, but reflecting on it and saying, no, that was wrong, requires thinking of the, separating myself from the memory in a sense and evaluating it and say, no, it was mistaken. Or I think that belief, I'm not sure that belief is true. Hmm. Or maybe my emotion was too intense. You know, we do that kind of thing all the time and we need to do that in order to govern ourselves. Yeah. So if autonomy really is an important value, we need to do a good job of governing ourselves. And in order to do a good job of governing ourselves, our self-consciousness has to switch. Um, I mean, we have self-consciousness in a sense automatically, the way Augustine said, but we need to be able to switch back and forth between being in a conscious state, a subjective state, and reflecting on that state and evaluating it. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure how to um, connect this with what Fichte said. Yeah. Uh, I'm not an expert on Fichte. So <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't have a lot to say about it. But there is a mystery about what the I is, you know, the capital I, not E-Y-E, yeah. what the I is. And um, he really brought to philosophical attention the fact that that actually undergirds most of our philosophical issues. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating. He, um, I, I grabbed two, two, um, of his arguments from your book. Um, okay. and he, he just said that, uh, well, he argued that unless we possessed an immediate acquaintance with ourselves, we would never know that when we turn our attention to ourselves in reflection, what we are aware of is our own self rather than an ex- external object. Yes. I'm glad you remember that. Yeah. Um, that I found that very illuminating. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. There is the immediate awareness of the self. And then when we reflect on the self, we may turn it into an object, as I just said, but yeah. we know it's the same thing. Yeah. We know it's this. Yeah. 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 Well, and so, so then he follows up furthermore, unless the self were always acquainted with itself, there would be no explanation for what would motivate the self to turn to itself in self-reflection. Mm-hmm. There would have to be some awareness of a self in order to know that there is something there to look at uh, and where to look. And so maybe, maybe, maybe memory or something, you have memory of yourself, but you'd still have to have this kind of self-knowledge or uh, yeah, self-knowledge in order to, to turn back to the self. In reflection, like you were saying, when we're reflecting on our memories or our beliefs and looking at them in an objective perspective, it's just I I thought that was so fascinating. And you mentioned that there's a huge span of time between Augustine and Fichte where people was weren't really uh, addressing this. And so I I thought that was cool. And that reminded me of why I was interested in him in the first place. Yes. And um, I think I also discussed that in the section on the ancient question, can the eye see itself? Yes, that's right. And mm-hmm. um, so many people find it curious um, that the eye cannot see itself, yeah. except in mirrors, which is not the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then the question was, what follows from that, of course? Um, 
But in a sense, both Augustine and Fichte are saying the eye can see itself. The eye is always aware of itself. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't see itself from the outside, or if it did, then it's not the same thing. Right. But what Fichte is saying, yes, and Augustine, the eye is aware of itself. And then if it turns around and looks at itself, it knows it's the same thing. Hmm. It, it's it's so cool when I it's kind of it kind of freaks me out a little bit to talk about this kind of stuff um, because I'm it's so fascinating. And it's so cool. And it's so it's it's something that's just take it for take it for granted in all of our experience. And so when you kind of reflect back on it, um, it's a little bit to me, it's like it's it's awe inspiring, but it's also terrifying because I, I just think like, what if I were a dog right now and I wouldn't have these experiences? So like there's this kind of luck situation where I'm like, man, I'm glad that this conscious thing that I am is a, is is capable of and maybe um necessarily self-conscious and self-aware uh it's it's such a fascinating thing that we just well we're human beings of course we are but you you make this distinction between the person and the self and uh man i'm just i'm just glad i'm a self-conscious person it's really a uh a privilege and a crazy responsibility as well but it's fascinating yes thank you and i i guess what i what i was saying about the difference between the person and the self is that the self is the inside of the person yeah and when we give theories of the universe as a whole, we talk about persons and where they are in the world. Uh, the, here's how they interact or, uh, or relate to other parts of the created world. But mm -hmm. the self is the inside of the person. Yeah. And um, once the inside of the person became important philosophically, and I think theologically, that uh, changed a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, it's so much so that it's 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 almost it's a it's pretty difficult to imagine what people thought about before they had this kind of perspective that we have. It's because it's so part of who we are. Um, mm -hmm. Well, so I, I wanted to move on to to the solution that you have uh, for the mm, problem between the ob objective and subjective. Like we have these two perspectives; um, they can wreak havoc in our politics. Uh, they can wreak havoc in our own conception of the world by not fitting them together. Uh, but, but you give the solution. Um, and I have the three steps here. If you want me to read those, or if you just have them on the top of your mind, uh, you can. Well, why don't you read them and then I'll just comment on it. Definitely. Awesome. Okay. So you begin, you say, uh, for step number one, begin by forming your total objective conception of reality. Um, so you have this conception of reality. You start with that. Uh, then step two, you turn your state of awareness of having this total conception of objective reality. Well, uh, you call it a TOC. You you turn your state of awareness of having a TOC into an object by reflecting on it. And then three, you fit that object of reflection back into your total conception of reality, your TOC. So you start with the subjective, even though um, it might it might sound confusing for people because you're taking your total objective conception of reality. But that is subjective because that's your conception of reality. But then you reflect on it and you turn it into like the the object of your thoughts. So if you have like a thought bubble, you're thinking about this thought bubble now and then you're fitting that into your whole conception of the world. Does that sound right? Well, uh, the only thing I would ch uh, change on what you said is that um, the total objective conception is objective. It's not subjective. 
So okay. the way I'm thinking it, you, you start with a total objective conception. And I'm I'm being neutral on what that is. You pick. Uh, okay, okay. You yeah, I remember what you it is. Yeah. It could be um, Aristotelian Thomistic. It could be yeah, monism. Galen. Or I don't care. Whatever it is, you start right. with you start with a total objective conception, um, and um, your awareness of that conception is not in the conception. Your okay. awareness is subjective. I thought the conception was uh, doing some work there and, and making it subjective, but I, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, so you start with an objective conception. Okay. Uh, pick any philosophical view you like, you know. I'm, and, uh, I mean, you can pick anything you want, but some will work better than others. That's <laughs> yeah. what's going to happen. Okay, so you start with your total objective conception, but your awareness of that conception, your having that conception is not in the conception because it's a subjective state. Gotcha. Now, to be total, that awareness has to be in it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, it, the, the total objective conception is missing something. It's missing your awareness of it. Yeah. So then I suggest using, you know, the fish to move. You know, you then become aware of your awareness um, as an object. Mm -hmm. You turn your awareness of the, of the TOC uh, into an object by reflecting on it yeah. and thinking about its objective properties. Um, and then once you do that, once you can see its objective properties, you can put that, you can insert that into the total objective conception. Yeah. That was the idea, how you, you turn your subjective uh, states into objects about by reflection once you do that, you insert them into the total objective conception. Now, sometimes it won't work because the total objective conception you start with isn't good enough. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that. So this is very schematic. It's mm -hmm. it's not um, it's not like I've actually done it. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, a, right. it's a sort of a, a recipe for for, you know, what people could do in the future in attempting to uh, put subjectivity into objective into an objective conception yeah and i, I appreciate this uh i think we mentioned off air um that josh rasmussen is is working on something like this as well in uh who his new book who are you really and so if the the audience wants to go check out our episode uh you can find that as well and we talk about it I, it also is uh reminiscent of um like nagel's the view from nowhere Yes, where, of course. Yes. Uh, and, and he's just hammering people for and I don't know if you call them modernists or what, but the, these people who are saying, like, we just need the objective perspective. And Nagel's like, well, you're you're missing billions mm -hmm. of subjective perspectives, which yes. actually are part of reality. So reality is more than objective reality. It's also yes. subjective reality. And that's what you're doing with that third step. I just think that's that's so cool. Yeah, it's great. Well, let me let me say one thing about that, since you mentioned Nagel. So Nagel. um concludes that nobody has satisfactorily put the objective and subjective perspectives together. Yeah. Um, they, you know, ignore one or the other and pretend they're not, I guess. <laughs> um, right. And so um, I think that's right. And, um, but I think that if we look at the two greatest ideas 
we'll see a third idea yeah. that ought to be one of the greatest. Mm-hmm. And if it was, we would be able to get past this um, impasse mm-hmm. between the subjective and objective perspectives. Yeah. And so this is what I suggest in the last chapter. The, um, the first greatest idea is the idea that the human mind can grasp the universe. The second greatest, greatest idea is the idea that the human mind can grasp itself. Mm-hmm. But if you look at those two ideas together, you'll notice a gap. The human mind can also grasp other minds. Yeah. And what I say is that even though that idea has been studied in neurobiology and psychology in phenomenology um, in um, various religious practices. I mean, that, that idea has been studied. And of course it's, it's, it's um, expressed vividly in literature, yeah. as we were talking about before in film, we're, we're sharing in other minds when we watch a film. Yeah. Um, so even though that idea appears in many parts of our culture, they're not connected so that we don't have um, a unified view of how minds intersect with other minds and what i think we need is a revolution in intersubjectivity that's comparable to the scientific revolution in understanding the objective world that if we had a revolution in intersubjectivity it would have to tie together um all the different pieces of work on empathy and other forms of intersubjectivity that people have worked on. Um, I mean, phenomenology made it, you know, a wonderful attempt a hundred years ago, but it didn't rise to the level of cultural importance that we saw in Descartes, for example, Mm -hmm. and in the scientific revolution. So uh, we need a revolution in intersubjectivity. And I think if we had such a revolution, we would be able to tie together the two greatest ideas. And we might even be able to get past our extreme um, uh, polarizing conflicts, practical conflicts, uh, by seeing through each other's eyes. Yeah. Um, So that's what I suggest. Yeah. And again, like I really appreciate this book because you, you're hitting on so many things that I'm interested in. Uh, Donald Davidson tried, I believe, this uh, to, to broach the objective and subjective with the inner inner subjective perspective through his triangulation argument. So the, the reason we have concepts in speech is because we've triangulated, we've learned our concepts, we've acquired them through this triangular process of you know learning mm-hmm. from our parents. So then we have we've solved the problem of other minds and external world because we have concepts and people for various reasons think that it, it didn't work, but <clears throat> I love the attempt. And, and I, yes, I'm, yes. I'm so pumped that, that you're also, uh, you know, ringing the bell that we need, we need to have this, not just for philosophical um, speculative thought, which, which to me would be enough, but also because it could have cultural ramifications that could heal 
some rifts between people. Uh, with that mm-hmm. in mind, I, I one last question. Okay. Um, we talked about how uh, Descartes can't be blamed for everything, but he he could be blamed for some. Meaning, like he is he his ideas were influential. I think that's definitely true. You can look at the movie Blade Runner, and like one of the yeah. the pinnacles of the movie is I think, therefore I am. Um, so, so yeah, art does borrow from philosophy as well, but I wonder about today and what you think about the role, um, the impact that, that philosophers have in the academy on cultural, uh, the culture more broadly, like, um, oh, I can see. we start, can we, can, yeah. do you still have okay. impact? Can we still so you're do not it? asking about Descartes? You're asking no. about philosophers who are alive today. Yeah. About Dr. Linda here. Yeah. To impact the culture. Right. Well, I don't see much um, evidence that philosophers today in the U.S. are impacting the culture, although it's possible if we could learn to write in a way that appeals to the ordinary person. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's I noticed in Britain there is more interest in philosophy Mm. current you know contemporary philosophy among or ordinary educated people so i'm not sure what to say i mean i don't um uh i mean i could say that um people are you know the culture is getting degraded Mm -hmm. by Oh, you know, social media and and um, uh, the silliest of movies and stuff like that. But but on the other hand, as I as I mentioned a minute ago, it's it's partly the fault of the philosophers for not knowing how to reach them. Yeah. Uh, so, and it isn't just philosophers that don't reach ordinary people. Most of academia doesn't. I mean, that's why that's probably why academia is in disrepute in the culture, yeah. because nobody talks to them, you know, yeah. so um, that's so I'm not sure what to say exactly. Yeah, I. it seems like the psychologists somehow figured out how to get their language out into oh, maybe. Yeah, the world. Right. But it's not it's not like we understand what those words mean. We just picked them up in our popular parlance and we mm-hmm. throw them around. But, um, yeah, I think of like Philip K. Dick. I know he wasn't like strictly a, a professional philosopher or anything like that. But he he did a great job of sneaking in philosophical ideas uh, into his literature. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe we, maybe philosophers need to write more novels or something. Um, but right. I, right. I'd, I'd love to. That's part make of the movies. They need exactly. To make movies. Exactly. <laughs> well, and that's part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast, because I think that yes. I, I love philosophers. I love theologians and yes. I want to get your guys' ideas out there. So if I could Good. just uh, promote the book one more time, it is the two greatest ideas, how our grasp of the universe and our minds changed everything. And uh, man, if you guys have been uh, encouraged by this, then uh, take up the the mantle of inner subjectivity. We got objective, <laughs> subjective. Now let's let's uh, get to work on inner subjective and let's heal the culture through philosophy. Uh, Linda, thanks so much for the books and uh, Thank and you. thanks for coming back on the podcast. All right. Thank you so much. Um, one last thing is I, I believe that you're working on um, the inner subject or uh, omni subjectivity book. Is that is that still in process? Is that coming any? Oh time yes, time? yes, it's definitely in process. Okay. Um, uh, it should be delivered by the end of the year. Fantastic. But I'm still revising. Okay. And, um, 
I'm, I really like it and it's getting a lot of reaction already. Okay. So, (laughs) so, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited for that one too. And we'll have to have you back on to talk about that as well. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, that's, that's going to do it for now, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.